so, tonight's study. I'm excited about this one. Um, and it's, uh, it may go just a touch long, so find a, a comfortable position in your chair there. Because, uh, like I said, I'm feeling preachy tonight. So, um, this may take a minute. Uh, we're in our discourse study. We're studying the discourses of Matthew. Also, um, I've been trying to cut back on coffee a little bit and um, drink more water. So if I'm dancing up here more than I usually do, it's probably the water. So just so you know that. Okay. Um, <laughs> I may have to leave mid-sermon and then just talk amongst yourselves. I'll be back in a minute. Um, no. Uh, so we're in our, our Matthew discourse. We're teaching through the, 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 uh, the sermons that Jesus preaches in the book of Matthew. There's five of them, five times where Jesus kind of preaches a lengthy sermon. And we're kind of breaking these down and looking at them. And, uh, and we opened up talking about how our hopes are to let these teachings drag us to Jesus. We're not looking for Jesus to give us a teaching, necessarily. We're not looking for Him to, to give us a new way to live or a new philosophy or a new worldview, necessarily. There's a little bit of that in there. But we're hoping is that in, in these teachings we'll be drawn to Christ Himself. It goes the other way in Christianity. We hear the teachings and they draw us to a person. We don't, it's not just a person bringing us a teaching, it's a teaching bringing us to a person. So our hopes are that we would be brought to Jesus and find Him even more captivating and even more beautiful and even more alluring than He was before. So we started with the Beatitudes. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. We started with the Beatitudes and we looked at this kind of new reality that Jesus lays out. He gives us these, these kind of um, these ways that things are, but we all know in our gut that's not actually the way things are. The meek don't generally inherit things. Uh, the peacemakers don't generally um, get you know, rewarded with peace. They usually get walked on. Um, those who are uh, hunger and thirst for justice don't usually get it. And so when Jesus lays out this reality, we recognize he's obviously describing something different than what we would call the real world. He's describing the kingdom of God. He's describing this new reality, this new way of things being. And this is the, this is the kingdom that we're advancing. We're advancing this different kingdom that's kind of flipped and upside down from the way we generally know things. So we laid that out the first week. And then uh, the next week, Bill brought us uh, kind of the beginning of, um, of the gospel going underneath the Torah, going underneath the law. He talked about simple, but not easy. He talked about how um, Jesus laid out these things. You've heard it said, don't murder. I say, don't get angry without cause. You know, and, and, and we talked about how you know, what, what law can you pass? What, how do you legislate anger? What law can you pass to keep somebody from getting angry? But the gospel goes underneath the law to the stuff you can't legislate. And it changes us from the inside out at this heart level and makes us actually different. And then the next week, um, we got into some of the good things we do. Giving and fasting and praying for people. And we talked about how even the good things we do there's this heart level part of it. He says, when you give, don't give to show off. Don't give to, and, and we all, and I'm going to rat you out because I wrote it down afterwards, who all raised their hand, but we all talked about that pressure that we feel when we do something secret and it feels so good, like nobody knows I did it totally in secret. And then the next day, that pressure to tell somebody, to let somebody know the good you did because it's like, I so desperately want somebody to pat me on the back for that, you know, and it's a, it's a tough one, you know, and we all feel it. You raised your hand. Don't judge me. <laughs> Which was tonight fun. Um, and then last week, um, we talked about how um, 
Uh, last week we talked about how it's not about our behavior, it's about our heart, which is shown by our behavior. And so we get caught in this tension loop where it's not about what we do, it's about what's going on in our heart. The way we know what's going on in our heart is what we do. And so we live in this kind of tension loop. But we did talk about there are some behaviors we do that create a space within us by which the gospel can work. And we talked about, we, we, we kind of zoomed in on worship. That worship is one of those behaviors that we do that, that gives the gospel room to move in us. And it's not just singing. It's just anytime we take our eyes off of us and put them on God. Something in that movement. God's not, like, a lot of people who don't believe in God, one of the arguments they'll bring up at us is they'll say, why would I want to worship some God that creates things just so that they'll sit there and worship Him? Like, like God's some kind of narcissist. You know, that he, that he sits there and, and somehow needs our worship. And that's not it at all. God doesn't need our worship. He's full and complete in and of himself. He just knows when we worship him, it's better for us. When we take our eyes off of ourselves for a minute and put it on something bigger, it changes our heart because we have a tendency to go completely inside and get completely caught up on ourselves. And so God knows that worship is one of those behaviors that, that kind of turns us inside out for a minute and takes our eyes off of us for a second and puts them on, on Him. And so tonight, so that's where we've been. This is where we're going. Tonight, um, we're going to talk about what's probably one of the most familiar uh, passages. Oh, man, there we go. One of the most familiar passages in the New Testament. We talk about this one all the time. Judging. What else could we say about this topic that hasn't already been said, right? Like, we've all, we've all done this. And... and uh, and what's funny is, is uh, this isn't just a Christian issue. I actually did, uh, in fact, here's a, here's a look at not being a Christian issue. This is a couple of years ago, but I went to the Chinese place down here in Gardner, the one by Price Shopper. Great food. If you don't, uh, if you've never been there, uh, great takeout. Go there. Um, anyway, I go in and I ordered for the whole family, which is a lot of food, right? And, I, and it, this is one of those times when I was probably at about my biggest. And, and I walk in and... <laughs> The, the the Asian guy there behind the counter um, is checking me out. He looks at the food and he looks at me and he goes, whew. And I was like, I go, I got a big family. <laughs> and he goes, hey man, I'm not judging. <laughs> I kid you not. Yeah, so it's, it's not even, it's not even just a, it's not even just a Christian thing. Like we're, we're sensitive to this even outside Christianity being judged. In fact, I looked up this week, um, psychology considers judging um, like a, an actual formative behavior. They, they, they break down um, the levels that, that we judge. We judge people by their character, by their personality, and by their capability. And then they have subcategories and all that. And they say, basically, this, this act of judging is one of the things that forms our psyche. And they, they feel like we need to do this. And then I looked up in sociology. They, they consider judging an actual uh, like force for the creation of culture, that societies use judging to create there are cultures and subcultures, and so they, they consider judging almost a, a cultural imperative. Um, and, uh, and social media thrives on it. It's, uh, it's, what, it's, it's what social media is built on, on us looking at other people's lives and putting our nose in other people's business. I, I, uh, we've made an art form out of it. I, I saw one um, earlier in the week, and it was this person kind of laid out on a couch, and there's orange smears on the couch and on their face, and their shirt is, whoops, their shirt is orange, and, they're, uh, and there's a big tub of empty um, Cheetos in their lap. And it just says, been a long week, don't judge me. 
Like, and, and so like it's, it's, it's our, oh man, that one. Okay, well, here we go. I had to go back a year to find this one. Um, I posted that a year ago. Soundtrack for today, Florida Georgia Line. Yeah, I know. Don't judge me. Yeah, so we, we've, we're used to this. We've made a game out of it. Um, and it's fun. Like, we, we play with it. Until you're at the grocery store, and your kids are being just hellions, and you, and you, and you get down, and you're like, I'm going to take you to the car. And you, and you stand up, and there's that other mom going, Right? And then it's not fun anymore. Then it's like you're just like, you know, you, 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 it's like you can feel it cutting you, actually cutting you. So how do we live in this tension? You know, sometimes, because sometimes we have to judge. I mean, if your kid comes home from the playground and they're like, I met a new friend today. He's 32 and wants me to come over and play video games and eat candy. Like, I hope you don't go, hey, who am I to judge? Maybe he likes playing video games with kids. No, in that situation, you absolutely judge. You absolutely go, no, I need his name and description. 911. <laughs> On top of this, the scripture sometimes makes it sound like we're to judge. Leviticus 19 says, do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. Do not spread slanderous gossip among people. Do not stand idly when your neighbor's life is threatened. I am the Lord. Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so that they're, uh, so you will not be held guilty for their sin. That sounds like a pretty judgmental passage. Like our job is to go around setting people straight. Later on this summer, we're going to talk about what we're supposed to do in a new covenant context when a brother sins against us. Again, it feels like it requires some judgment. So, how do we function in this tension? Jesus kind of lays it out for us here. He says, um, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own? And I think this is one of the most fascinating pericopes of Scripture because um, we all read the same words and we come out of this thing with such dramatically different approaches to how we handle this passage. And, and, it's, and I, what I kind of want to do here is because there's no complexity here. There's no like hermeneutical complexity or big cultural context we have to bring to this verse. It's, it's pretty cut and dry. The words say what they say, they say. Like there's nothing fancy going on. So how do we all mix this one up so bad? Because we come out of a different... So what I thought would be fun, we'll look at the three kind of main ways that we interpret this passage. First, we say judge not. Like you got that group that's like, hey... I don't judge, right? We've got those people. They're just like, who am I to judge? I don't, I don't do that. I don't get involved, right? And what I suspect they mean is, wow, that looks really messy and I don't want to get involved, so who am I to judge? Like, I don't want to, like, your problems, like what you're doing, that, that would take a lot of work for me, so judge that you'd be not judged, right? Uh, that's what I think is usually going on. But there's another way to interpret it. Whoops. Oh, yeah. If I judge me, then I'm free to judge you. You guys ever heard this one? Like, as long as I take care of my plank, then I can pick on your spec. Like, and, and that's basically what we mean. As long as I've done the work to deal with my plank, then I'm supposed to deal with your spec. And I suspect what that actually means is once I've said some kind of perfunctory prayer 
to, to deal with my own stuff, once I've kind of said, God, forgive me for my stuff, then I get free reign on your junk. Like, we just think as long as I, you know, I kind of do this, you know, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. Now I'm the judging machine and can go to work. Like, and I think that's usually what we mean when we say this one. And the last one, which I think is maybe the boldest, I don't know a lot of people like this, but a few, that say I'm completely comfortable being judged by my standard of judgment. There are those who are bold enough to say this. I mean, the, the Westboro people are kind of in this camp, like the ones who, are, who say, you know, uh, the passage says that we'll be judged by the standard that we judge others. I'm, I'm committed to holy lifestyle, so I'm fine with God judging me according to my judgment. What I think that means is I don't like gays. I really want to judge gays. I'm not gay. So, in fact, i got a whole list of sins I don't have a problem with. So I'm going to list, I'm going to judge people with this list and I'm totally fine God judge me with this list because I don't have a problem with this list, right? And so we say, as long as God judges me according to these things, I'm all good, right? And so there's people who go that route. Now, if we look at all three of those, be honest now, do any of these sound like Jesus? Do any of those, like does Jesus say, you know what, I don't want to get involved, I don't judge. Or does he say, as long as I deal with my stuff, then I can jump all over your stuff and attack your stuff? Like, does any of this sound like it brings, like it answers the tension of that passage? I don't think so, personally. So I'm going to offer another interpretation that kind of goes closer to what we've been doing in the Sermon on the Mount this far. It kind of, it kind of carries what we've already been talking about um, so far. Because, see, the. The gospel, and this is what we've been dealing with, the gospel goes underneath the law, underneath the command, underneath the Torah, to our motives and our intents, our anxieties, our fears. Like that's where the gospel wants to work. It wants to work underneath there with the stuff that you can't legislate, our feelings. And now I've struggled each week to come up with a metaphor for that. I was, and a way to communicate it and I couldn't find it and then I think I did this week and of course once you find it you're like duh how did you not see that it's the iceberg see I think Jesus when he uses the plank and the speck he's using some hyperbole to be a little bit funny like how could you see past a big two by four hanging out of your eye to do the delicate work of getting a speck out of someone else's eye and and I get that part but I think the, the problem we have is, is it doesn't feel that way to us. Now, the rest of the discourse we've been talking about looks like that. Right? He says, you've heard it, you've heard it said, don't murder. I say, don't get angry. Right? And, the, and if, if the proportions bother you, if, if, the, if the proportions don't feel right, like surely murder is worse than anger, Right? Like, why would murder be up on the little part, anger on the, on the bottom part? Right? Well, let me ask you this. If you're, if you, and this is the problem we have with the speck and the plank, because we honestly feel like if we're, even in our most honest moments, like, we're like, when we look at somebody that we want to judge, say a murderer, and we're like, surely that's a plank. And I got a speck because I've never done that. And I would never do that, right? So, it's, so sometimes the pleck and spank thing doesn't... Yeah, that was fun. Speck and plank thing doesn't work right. Like sometimes it doesn't feel right because the things we're judging really do seem bad, right? They really do seem evil. 
But let me ask you this. Just, just so we can get this straight. Let's deal with murder and anger. Who do you think will have an easier time quitting their sin? The murderer or you who gets angry? Who do you think will have an easier time saying, I'm not going to do this anymore? Probably the murderer. Right? And if not, we can lock him up, put him in solitary, and we can see to it that there's no more murder. What can we do about your anger? You see why anger, anxiety starts to look like the big part underwater. The stuff under the surface is bigger and goes so much deeper and it's way harder to master. We tend to look at the stuff on top, that little spot, and we're like, that bothers me. I don't like that. Stop doing that. And I think what we mean is I can see that one, so I want it to quit. I don't want you to do that anymore. And we forget that God's looking at that whole thing. And this goes all the way back to uh, when we did our, our study on Jeremiah. And Jeremiah talked about there's going to come a new covenant when I'm going to write my law on their hearts. And Jesus kind of pulled off that prophecy and dusted it off at the Last Supper and said, this is that new covenant. When he's pouring the, the wine, he said, this is that new covenant in my blood. And see, we, we, we look at that, that God's going to write his word on our heart. And I think we equate that to memorization. Like, we just think that means it's going to, like, be in our heads. And we won't need to look it up on paper anymore because we'll just know it, right? But I, th- I think there's something deeper than just putting it on our hearts, meaning, like, it's gonna, we're going to memorize it. It means, like, this, that the gospel is going to go down underneath the surface into us where it can work on that stuff that the, that the, the Torah on paper couldn't touch, where it works on where it actually changes us from the inside down. So let's take this metaphor back to our back to our passage for tonight. Because if we're honest, we don't think we don't think Jesus had it right when he said speck and plank. We don't feel like that stuff we're judging is really a speck. Murder doesn't feel like a speck. In our in our guts, murder feels like a plank. If there's ever a plank, that's a plank, right? Murder doesn't feel like or, you know, adultery doesn't feel like a speck. That feels like a plank. That's a big one. And I'm not saying, the, I'm not saying those aren't big sins. I'm not saying those aren't big deals. I'm not saying we don't need to deal with those. I'm not saying we don't need to resist those. Absolutely. But most of us don't murder. I hope. I really hope. If so, I don't want to know about it. Most of us, that's not one we struggle with. But all of us deal with anger. And so he, that's why he can just universally go, you've got a plank in your eye and you're picking on a speck. Because all of us have, we talked about anxiety. Jesus came right out and said, don't be anxious for anything. And we talked about like, how do you, what's the worst thing you can say to someone who's in an anxiety attack? Stop being anxious. Settle down. Like you try to put a command on them in that moment and it falls short, doesn't it? We need something inside that changes that anxiety. You can't command that away. You need the gospel building this faith and confidence and this trust in God that says, you know what? I I read a book this week and it talked about taking our, like when the devil attacks you with that what if, like what if if they get in a wreck? What if they blah, blah, blah? And this guy said, answer the question. Answer the question. 
What if she gets in a wreck? Okay, then what? Does God abandon you? Like, is, is God not there because she got in a wreck? Is, is, you know, yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, it's going to mean some changes. Yes, it's going to mean, and you know what? God's going to be there every step of the way. When you take your what if all the way to the bottom, you know what you find? God's on the bottom too. Like, there is no, like, ultimately, and once we grasp that, once we, that's the, the, once the gospel gets in and puts that in us, that's the only thing that can change anxiety. Not a command. Not a... So anxiety's part of that plank. It's hard. It's big. It's hard to get out of us. It's hard to root out. Only the gospel can do that. So the question still stands. How do, we, how do we live out this verse? Because I think there are three imperatives here. I think there's three basically commands that take place in this verse. Don't judge. Deal with your plank. Help your brother with their speck. I think we're commanded to do all three. I think all three exist in this verse. There's three things we have to do. We have to not judge. And I think that kind of brings balance to the thing. I think that's the tension. That creates the tension to keep us centered. Deal with your plank. Help your neighbor with their speck. So we know what don't judge means. Let's deal with the plank. Let's go back to the plank. Let's talk about this under the surface stuff. And this is the stuff we've been talking about this whole study. It's come up every single week. Jesus finds a new way to bring it out in almost every little pericope. He's back into that motive stuff, back into that heart stuff, back into that why you're doing what you're doing. Not just what you're doing, but why you're doing it. This is the stuff that the law is powerless to touch. You can't legislate it. If we pass the right law, if we elect the right politician, if we, if we get everything we would ever dreamed of in Washington, nothing under the water changes. That can't touch anything under the water. There's nothing you can do. Only the gospel can go under the water. This is the realm of the gospel. This is the Holy Spirit getting in and and not only convicting us, but empowering us to change. That's what he does. This is the, the, the Holy Spirit gets in and, and, and really, if we're honest, the Holy Spirit just changes you. This is about you walking with God over time and looking back and saying, I'm not the same person I was. And, and, and looking at that and realizing, man, I don't even remember. I remember back when I used to struggle and fight to change stuff. And then here, and then I just walk with Jesus, and here I am, it just fell off, and I didn't even notice when I quit doing that. I just don't do that anymore. I just don't really struggle with that anymore. That's the gospel working under the surface. It's like the old preacher, you know, I don't usually like to use preacher cliches, but if there's one I love, it's like, no, I'm not who I should be, but praise God, I'm not who I used to be. Right? Everybody's heard that one? That's where the gospel works. It's getting a heart of flesh for our heart of stone as the Old Testament says. And the beauty of the analogy here is that when it comes to judging is that when you've seen under the water, when you've seen your anger, when you've seen your lust, when you've seen your, your, your feeling for your enemies, the people who really drive you nuts, when you've seen your pride, how much you love for people to know when you do good and when you give, and when you've seen how absolutely powerless you are to change that by yourself, 
how absolutely powerless you are to do anything about the stuff that's under the surface. When you find yourself being the woman caught in adultery and you're standing there with drop stones all around you and Jesus and you're standing there waiting for him to throw his and he says I'm not going to throw it either when you have found yourself in that spot and I have how do you ever go back and deal with somebody else's speck the same way again that is the beauty of the speck in the plank. Timothy Keller says it this way, and I'm not, I didn't take the time to look it up. I've just heard him say it several times. He says, to be loved but not known is a little bit comforting and sentimental, but mostly worthless. Because you know if you knew me, you wouldn't really love me. To be known but not loved is our greatest fear. Is that somebody would see what's on the inside and turn and walk away because they saw it. But to be known and loved is the gospel. To have Jesus see what's under the water. To have him see the plank. To have him be able to call out all the junk that's under there. All the stuff we deal with. All the stuff that we work really hard to hide. All the stuff that we would never show on Sunday night. And Jesus has seen it. And even though he's seen it, he still says, neither do I condemn you. Go forth and sin no more. To be fully known and fully loved is the gospel. And when you've seen your plank, when you've been under the water, when you've seen the yuck, and Jesus doesn't turn away from you, you'll do two things. You'll run to the cross and worship. I believe that with all my heart. I think worship comes from being fully known and fully loved. Not only will you run to the cross and worship, but you'll go to your brother completely different. It takes care of the judging problem. Because when you're looking at that little white part on top and you know you got the big part underneath, how do you judge? How do you judge? Now, there's some implications to this that I do want to walk through. Some things that are just kind of under the surface that, that are in there, but they don't say it outright. Number one, I work is communal work. If you notice in this thing, there's, there's more than one person. It takes two people. To, to do I work. The reformers, there's a theology they uncovered, the priesthood of all believers. Anybody ever heard this? Thrown around the priesthood of all believers? There's a beautiful theology they kind of pulled out. And basically what it meant was there's no access to God or special grace that's reserved to the clergy. That, that we all have the same access and we all have the same beauty. And and, and it's, a, it's a beautiful scripture, but I feel like we've misinterpreted it. I feel like we've taken it with kind of our American individualism to mean we no longer need a priest. That, that we all can just go straight to God. We can have this one-on-one individual relationship with God thing. And I don't think that's what the priesthood of all believers means at all. Because I think we absolutely need a priest. 
I think we still need someone to confess to. I think we still need someone to lay hands on us and bless us. I think we still need someone to help us with the speck in our eye. The priesthood of all believers didn't say we no longer need a priest. It invited us all into that priesthood. It said that we all serve as priests. It's, It's this communal thing. We all now have the responsibility to receive a confession, to bless to, to help somebody with the speck in their eye. This is communal work. This is relational work. This takes all of us. Number two, it's communal work. And I think eye work shouldn't look like judging. Let's remember Jesus started this whole thing with judge not that you be not judged. That's what creates the tension. If, if your eye work, if you helping people with the speck in their eye makes them feel like they're being judged, then you probably need to get back underneath the water. That, that there's, there's probably something um, that you could do better. Because I think when you've, when you've seen you're under the water and you're helping someone deal with their above the water, it looks like love, not judging. I think it comes, it comes out totally different. I think you're still saying, you know, you've got some things in your life that I'm worried about. I'm like, are you doing okay? And, and, and you're seeing stuff in their life and it, it, it makes you nervous for them. And it hurts you for them that they're struggling with this stuff. And you go at them and like, are you okay? Is there anything I can do to help you? Can I pray for you? And what are you doing if you're honest? You're judging. You're looking at their life and saying there's some things in there that aren't in line. Maybe. I mean, you could, you could say that's what's going on. But if you've been under the water, it doesn't come out that way. If you've been under the water, it comes out like, I'm, I'm going to tell this story. <laughs> it's not in my notes. There's no way I'm going to hold it together for this. Some of the emotion that April was purging um, during that last song, uh, her grandma died um, a couple weeks ago. And uh, her grandma was one of these people who um, had a way of showing you the, the fire that exists in love. She was one of those people that if you weren't living the way you should be, she would come up and love on you and accept you fully the way you are, and it would burn like hell because you knew you weren't where you should be. And she would never like, you need to straighten up. You need to, (laughs) dang it. I looked over at April. Something about the love that this woman had was convicting all by itself. She never had to point at your life and go, hey, you need to tell this, you need to tell that, blah, blah, blah. I mean, she was, this is Sharon, uh, she was your mom, maybe you got the finger too. But I never did, I always got the hug. And the hug made you want to change. Like somehow the hug convicted you more than the finger. When you've been under the water, that's what it feels like. It feels like love. It feels like somebody loving you and somehow that love makes you want to change. Like in in a way that judging never does. Like judging makes you want to square off. Go, I'll show you, you know, 
I'm going to really dig into sin now. Now I don't know where I am. Completely off my notes. Our third one. Let's just jump ahead. I work is vulnerable work. It's very vulnerable. Here's what I mean by that. Judging is, is shielding behavior. It's, it's protecting yourself while you expose someone else. Right? That's what we do when we judge. We hide ourselves and we expose them. We pull their stuff out. This kind of exchange that Jesus is, is talking about here is, is totally different. Because you're being real with your junk, with your plank, while you're helping somebody with their spec. It's a very vulnerable authentic process. It's about owning your situation while you're helping someone deal with theirs. And I think this is the part we find most difficult because we don't like authenticity, right? We like conformity. We like, and, and this is something I thought of this week. Um, how many, anybody have kids that like to play dress up? April's holding the baby, but she's not. Yeah, like to play dress up. Any of you still like to play dress up? I don't want to know. I don't know. I'm not judging. Yeah. Um, yeah, our kids love to play dress up. And my kids, they, they, they sort of outgrow it, but the way I can tell that they haven't outgrown it is we go to the fair. That's when I can tell that my kids still like to play dress up because they'll dress, you know, like hipsters, you know, in skinny jeans and, you know, and the whole thing. And then it's fair time and they're all in like jeans and cowboy boots and they'll pull out the hat. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, we're going to the fair. Uh, and it's what it is, is just dress up, right? It's like, hey, I get one week to dress like a cowboy. I'm going to do it, you know. And you see it with grown-ups at, at, uh, at Halloween. It always cracks me up, the, the grown-ups that still, like, go all out on Halloween. Like, I got one night a week to, to play dress up like I was a kid, and they just love it. And I think we tend to do that at church, right? We kind of walk in, we measure the room. And we're like, oh, this is a big Bible church. Okay, I'll go home and get my big Bible. Next week I'll come back with my big Bible so I can fit in, right? Or we come in and everyone's wearing a red hat and an NRA t-shirt. We're like, okay, I know this church. I can get my outfit out and I can fit in right here. Or half the people are in sandals and carrying eco-friendly coffee cups. And you're like, oh, I know that church. Of course, I'm wearing sandals tonight, so that is awesome. Right? We measure the room. We immediately look around. And we, or we decide we want to do like the millennial worship leader thing. Like we'll see the rock star worship leader and we'll put on the skinny jeans and the shirt that's too long and the, and the untied high tops and we'll get this haircut. <laughs> I've been dying for a chance to put that up there. <laughs> and if you don't, if that doesn't look true to you, you need to spend some time on YouTube because I am not kidding. <laughs> that is as true as it gets. I'm sorry, I had to. Uh, I couldn't help it. Hopefully we don't go that far when we play dress up. But we do like to play dress up. And what's worse is it's like a fashion show. Anybody ever, ever seen a fashion show or seen pictures from a fashion show? Okay, not in your living room. Like the real ones, like in France, or is that where they happen? I don't know where they happen. Wherever the big fashion shows happen. You ever looked at them and gone, where do you ever wear that? You ever done that? Like, in what context does the shoestring and the cattail, and I think that's a, I think that's an oven mitt. Like, have you ever looked at that and wondered what kind of party that would be appropriate at? Anybody ever done that? Everybody's done that. 
I have a feeling, if we were honest with ourselves, church is that way. Like we come in and we're like, praise Jesus, the Lord is mighty. And you wonder, where does that ever fit? Like, do you wear that outside of here? Do you walk into work on Monday and everybody's like, how you doing, Bob? Praise Jesus, the Lord is mighty. Like, like we look at, we walk in and we, and we, we, we put on whatever outfit we have to put on, but we pretty quickly realize there's nothing about this outfit that I could wear in any other environment. There's nothing about this outfit that fits out there. And in a big way, I think we all know that. Because we, we fight against authenticity. I work as vulnerable work which is why I don't think we like to do this. So how do we respond to this? First, this response is going to be a little more lengthy than usual, so don't start doing the whole I'm ready to leave yet. And I want you to know that judging goes in two directions. It does move two ways. We only dealt with one way. We dealt with us, you know, judging the bad stuff going on in someone else's life. But today I think we have just as big a problem with the other way. We're a social media World. This is the currency of social media. We look at the, the, we judge other people's highlight reel against our bloopers and outtakes. You know what I mean? Like we, we, we look at the, we look at their spec and go, oh man, they got such an awesome life. While you're at home trying to wrestle the plank. You know, you're at home. This actually happened one day with Bill Holtzider and I. And we, we talked about it later and it was hilarious. Um, he takes his kids to Ernie Miller Park and they're on a walk and he has that one picture where the light's coming in perfect and the kids are on the trail and everything's great and he snaps it, puts it on Instagram and I'm sitting there studying and I'm behind and I haven't seen my kids in like two days because I've been studying so hard and I'm, and I'm like, man... Bill's out hiking. He's spending time with his kids, and I'm here studying, and I never get to, you know, do that kind of stuff because I'm so busy. Ah, I'm feeling bad about myself, and I'm all down. And about 10 minutes later, I snap a picture of, you know, I, I set up my desk, I take the junk food out of the picture, I don't want that in there. And I got like a big theological text, and I put it in the thing so that it's in there, and I lit a candle took the picture, yeah, post it, Bill sees it, God, I need to study the Bible more, Chris is always studying, so smart, and I'm out here in the woods with my kids, and, and we're both like beating up our own life, and, and look at the other guy's life like, ah, because that's what Instagram does, it's the highlight reel, it's the best of the best, and we're looking at it while we're in the midst of wrestling with our junk. And I talked to Bill. Bill goes, I screamed at my kids that entire hike. It was not fun at all. I almost had to spank one of them in the parking lot. I screamed at them. They cried. I wound up carrying Liam the whole second half of the way. That was the worst hike we've ever been on. But he caught that one moment. That's what he posted. He didn't post screaming at Aviva in the parking lot. Shut up and get in the car. That didn't go on Instagram. Nope. Yeah, neither one of us posted anything that was real. I wasn't reading a theological text. 
We see the tip of their iceberg while we're dealing with the underwater parts. So judging goes both ways. But I truly believe that our true power is in our authenticity. It's in us being us. One of my favorite characters in the Old Testament is Jacob. And there's this, there's this, most of us know the story fairly well. Jacob stole his, he had tricked his brother out of his inheritance and, and later he uh, pulls a, a con to get his birthright. And his dad almost caught him in it, could tell something was off. And he asked him this question, who are you? And he says, I'm Esau. And he feels the goat fur on his arm, which, man, Esau must have been hairy. If you can get goat fur to pull, I got goats. And if you're hairy enough that goat fur passes, dude. (laughs) So he says, who are you? And he says, I'm Esau. And he he says, okay, and he gives him the blessing. And Esau comes back and he's furious and Jacob has to run. Jacob finds himself and his uncle Laban's in this situation where the con man gets conned. And he winds up there for like 15 years. By the time he gets both his wives and builds up a flock, he's on his way back and he has this wrestling match with an angel. They wrestle all night long and they're fighting and, they're, and, and the angel breaks his hip, which I think is, a, is really interesting because Jacob was a runner. Every time he got in trouble, he ran. And so the fact that he gets his hip broken, I think is key. I think... God was taking away his ability to run. And just right after that, he runs into his brother and he's so afraid he like splits his family up into camps. And he's like, you go first. So that this is terrible. You go first so that if they kill you, we can get away. I just like to be in that group, right? And then, you know, and they bring gifts and blah, blah. I personally think if not for the wrestling match with the angel, Jacob would have never done that. He'd have ran like crazy. He can't now. He's got a broken hip. And so he's limping up to Esau. Yeah. I'm sorry for interrupting. No. But as you brought that up, it reminded me of the 99. When he brought the one back over his shoulder, didn't he break his leg so it wouldn't go Um, I think I have heard that. That's what shepherds used to do back then, if, if they had one that kept getting away. Yeah. Yeah. But something huge happens in Jacob's life where... Um, when he's wrestling with this angel. Angel breaks his hip. The sun's coming up. The angel's like, let me go. And he's like, no, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. What happens next? Anybody know? What's he say? What's the angel say next? Anybody know? He says, what is your name? And I know Jacob flashed back to that, to that question his dad asked him. His dad was like, what is your name? And he said, Esau. And he's been running and he's been hiding ever since. And the angel, before the blessing will come, before anything good will happen, before he gets this new name and this new destiny, the angel goes, what is your name? And he finally goes, Jacob, I am me. Here I am. No more hiding, no pretending to be anybody else. No more playing dress up. No more phony. I am Jacob. And with that came this new, this whole new destiny. He says, nope, your name is now going to be Israel and you're going to be the people of God. But not until he owned it. Not until he said, this is who I am. I think our power is in our authenticity. I think this question about what happens 
underneath the surface is God going, what is your name? Who are you? Are you willing to be you? Are you willing to own the plank? Are you willing to go underwater and let the gospel change you from the inside? And if we'll do that, I told you I was going to drag on for a while. Once I get preachy, it just, I can't quit. So, when we do that, I think it looks like this. My mom made that. She's kind of crafty, and when they bought their house, what, 25 years ago or something, 26 years ago, it has a vaulted ceiling, and she wanted to put a stained glass window up there. And she figured she could figure it out on her own and figure out how to do it. And she did. She did an amazing job. It took her... My dad remodeled an entire house in the time it took my mom to do that window. So that, but she did get it done, and it's amazing. And what struck me was she bought sheets of glass. And they're perfect, and they're rectangular, and they're useless. And the first thing she has to do is get out this little hammer and break them. Now she's got broken glass. And none of them are perfect, and they're all different. And some of them she had to score, and she took these little grindy nippers and, and made that glass scratching sound as she would trim them. And she got out of this little grinder, and, and this broken glass got shaped, and then she wrapped it in this soft metal so she could bind it next to another piece of broken glass, and another piece of broken glass, and another piece of broken glass until you get that. Literally broken glass put together to make something beautiful. And if that's not a metaphor for the church, then I don't know what is. Then we're a bunch of broken people, a bunch of Jacobs. None of us rectangles anymore. None of us perfect anymore. We've been broken and shattered and our best hope is that he'll wrap, up, wrap our sharp edges, stick us next to another piece of broken glass and another piece of broken glass and another piece of broken glass and hopefully make something beautiful out of us. So, as we close, for my first closing, no, okay. no I'm done. I'm done. As we close, and go to the table. Um, there's a comparison of verses here that I really like. Our first week, when we're in the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And here tonight we learned uh, the measure that you use to judge is the measure that is judged back at you. I'm seeing a pattern form in this that what you give, you get. And so my hopes for us is that when in doubt, we would show mercy. That we would be a church of mercy. Because I think when we do that, we'll, and we let the gospel work on us, and we let the gospel get under the surface and change us, we're going to find all of us getting more and more like Jesus without having to pick on each other. I think mercy, we're getting ready to sing a song, and one of my favorite lines in it is mercy triumphs over judgment. If we're playing like rock, paper, scissors, mercy always beats judgment.